Well, good morning. It's an encouragement that you are here with us this morning. Despite some of the stuff we got to go through, thank you for being here. We're in Mark chapter 8 this morning, beginning in verse 27 and then going to the end of the chapter. If you are just joining us, welcome. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, a reintroduction to Jesus. Um, Our text this morning is really in the middle of Mark's Gospel. And it kind of signals the beginning of the end. We know that the whole story of Jesus climaxes in the cross and the resurrection. But the Gospel of Mark, as it leans towards that, kind of has a turn here and begins to head towards that particular moment in the life and death of Jesus. Now up to this point, though, Jesus has demonstrated all that He can do. Uh, all that he is capable of, and uh, the power of Jesus is uh, rather unparalleled in history. Uh, What we see is that Jesus healed lepers, Jesus caused the lame to walk, Jesus helped the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, the blind to see. Uh, He's cured the paralyzed, the chronically ill, the demon-possessed, even raised the dead. He's calmed the seas. He has walked on water. He has fed thousands miraculously twice with a few loaves and some fish. He's amazing in any measure. And this is only really a sampling of what Jesus did throughout his ministry. The Apostle John has an interesting statement at the end of his gospel. And he writes this in chapter 21 verse 25 that there are many more things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So there's so much more that Jesus did. And as we engage with the people in this moment in history, we know that here everyone knows what Jesus has done, but truly no one at this point knows who Jesus is. Up to this point, the only ones to rightly identify Jesus have been fearful demons and faithful Gentiles. His own people do not know who he is. The Roman political leaders are confused. The Jewish religious leaders are concerned. And even his own family members think he's out of his mind. And those closest to Jesus, these 12 disciples who have followed him from the very beginning and spent the most time with him more than once they have asked out loud who is this man even though the disciples are the ones nearest to jesus they still don't know who he is after several years of ministry having enjoyed a front row seat to his miracles, after years of being able to ask the rabbi questions, the teacher now kind of turns the table and starts to ask them questions like this, which are more rhetorical statements. Do do you not yet perceive? Are your hearts still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see and ears? Do you not hear? Do you not understand yet? Do you not get it? It seems that it's possible to know a lot about Jesus, to talk a lot about Jesus, to even spend a lot of time with Jesus. 
and not actually understand who Jesus is or why he came. So at the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus asks the most important question that anyone who lives must answer before they die. And the question is the overarching theme of the Gospel of Mark, which is written to non-believing Romans. And the question is simply, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? A question we could ask our non-believing friends, even believing friends, and get a myriad of answers. Well, without debate, the majority of the world today agrees that Jesus is both historical and significant. He is real, he really lived, and he really impacted the world. Famous English writer H.G. Wells said it this way, I'm an historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as an historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. Non-believer. More than anything, I am convinced that who you believe Jesus is revealed to be, either a penniless preacher or the very Son of God. But that will not only determine how you understand exactly what He did, it will dictate the entire course of your life and what you do with what remains. Even if you come to accept Him as the center of history, which most people do, My prayer is that you will receive Him as the center of your life, which is very different and changes everything. Dare I say, it's easy to make Him the center of history. It's very costly to make Him the center of your life. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, we hear Jesus begin to ask His disciples questions. It says, As Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So, Jesus and his disciples once again are traveling through non-believing, dirty, Gentile territory. And he asks what seems like a really simple question. He hasn't asked a lot of questions of his disciples, though they've asked many questions of him. Who do people say that I am? Jesus had become very popular in a short amount of time, very prominent. Thousands of people seek him out. And then when he leaves, thousands of people chase him down. Everyone has an opinion of who Jesus is. The people are talking, the religious people, the irreligious people, the political people. And so Jesus simply asks, who do people say? What's the talk? And so the disciples share the various opinions that they've heard. Some say John the Baptist, who we read about earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Some say Elijah, who was a prophet from some time ago when the uh, nation was divided. Others say one of the prophets, perhaps like Jeremiah. 
All of these individuals that they name are well-known individuals, and all of these individuals are dead. Jesus had become so prominent and so powerful and so popular that he wasn't just, oh, you remind me of these prophets. It was, maybe you're a reincarnated version of these prophets. Herod, the ruler of Judea in Rome, the one who had killed John the Baptist, wondered publicly if he was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And so all of these ideas, all of these labels were intended to honor Jesus. They were in response to the amazing things he'd done. These were all amazing people who had big effect, but they were all totally wrong. Today, a majority of people, most of the world believes in the historicity of a man named Jesus from a village north of Galilee called Nazareth. And truth be told, most admire him. They admire this penniless preacher, this marginalized peasant named Jesus. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who doesn't have something positive to say about Jesus. They may have a lot to say negative about Jesus' followers, but they don't have much negative to say about Jesus. Even the world religions have an honorable view of Jesus. Some believe that Jesus was a good man. Some believe he was a good teacher. And others, a very moral leader who died as a martyr. But with every declaration that someone makes about Jesus, there's also a denial of who Jesus is. What do I mean by that? Well, if Jesus is a good man, then he's not a bad man. If Jesus is a good teacher, then he's not a false teacher. If Jesus is a moral leader, he's not an immoral liar. Well, Jesus may in fact be a good man. He may be a great teacher and he may even be a moral leader. The only problem is Jesus himself claimed to be a whole lot more than that. And to claim that Jesus is mistaken or that Jesus was wrong or that he is a liar is to actually declare that is he in fact a bad man then or a horrible teacher or an immoral liar. I love the way that C.S. Lewis famously said it. Perhaps you've heard this before. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What an amazing statement. You cannot call Jesus a good teacher if you know what he taught. You cannot call him a moral leader exclusively. And if that's all he is to you, then you are a really bad reader because he taught so much more controversial than that. 
So who is Jesus? Well, he makes it a little more personal to the disciples. And he asks them, it says in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter answers him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. See, Jesus isn't concerned, nor should we be too concerned with what they say about Jesus. Lots of people say lots of things about Jesus. And we focus often on what they say, what they're doing. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And how are you living in response to that? If pressed, who is Jesus? Peter is the only one who speaks up. It seems that Jesus wants to know, do you agree with everybody? Do you agree with what the populace said? Do you agree with the crowds? Do you agree with the majority? And Peter responds, says, you're the Christ. He says something different. You're the Christ. Contrary to popular belief, Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ invokes the weight of the entire Old Testament in that title. It encapsulates all the Bible's teachings about God's promised Savior in the Old Testament. Everything that the Bible reveals about the one who would come. And when we trace the meaning of the word Christ to its Hebrew origins, it goes to the Old Testament word, which you've probably heard before, Messiah. And both Christ and Messiah literally mean the anointed one. And when we think of the anointed in the Old Testament, that brings us back to kings. Kings were the anointed ones, and they were even practically, literally anointed with oil as they were assuming the throne. And so by calling Him the Christ, to confess Jesus as the Christ, is to declare that He is God's anointed one, the long-awaited King of God's kingdom. Who do you say Jesus is? Is He just a good man? Is He just a good teacher? Is He just a moral leader like Gandhi? Now if you recall, Mark began his gospel by showing his cards and kind of showing the direction he was going and he talked about Christ. In the very first verse of the gospel, he said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the first verse in his gospel. This helps to form our thinking a little bit. Because to declare Jesus as the Christ then is attached to this Son of God phrase. The Son of God means that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. He has got divinity. He is God incarnate. Now that's a big leap from Jesus being a good man. From Jesus just being a good teacher, from Jesus just being a moral leader to say, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of God. He is divine. That takes more than just a really good apologetic argument. It takes more than just a bit of evidence. And this is why in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus asked that question, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, 
You are the Christ. And Jesus responds. And He says, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father is who is in heaven. What does it take for someone to, to see Jesus as more than a good man, more than just a good teacher, more than just a moral leader? It takes the revelation of God. Doesn't mean we shouldn't proclaim. Doesn't mean we shouldn't argue or persuade. It says that what is the decisive change is a spiritual one. And when that happens, when you declare that Jesus is more, that He is the King of creation, He is the Savior of the world, He is the Son of God, and the complete revelation of everything God has to say about Himself, you realize how different that is in the world. Obviously, most people don't believe that. But if you do believe that, that requires a particular kind of response. If he's just a good teacher, there's lots of them. If he's just a good man, okay. But if he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, if he's the creator of all things, if he is the Son of God, we ought listen because he calls the shots. As Peter rightly confesses who Jesus is, he then is troubled by what Jesus says next. And you look in verse 31, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I love this phrase. And he said this plainly. Jesus has... Um, spoken a lot of parables. A lot of things you go like, what does that mean? What are you talking about? And they'd ask him later, like, can you explain this to us? He'd be like, really? You guys still need to know? And he'd explain it to them. And here, there's no explanation needed. They know exactly what he's saying. Peter took him aside. So imagine this, right? I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. He comes around what are you talking about? He pulls Jesus over and begins to rebuke the Son of God for His plan. And Jesus listens and doesn't say a word to him at first, but it says, verse 33, but turning and seeing His disciples, because His disciples are watching all this play out. And He rebukes Peter in front of the disciples, and He says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, we can't blame Peter's reaction because up to this point, Jesus has demonstrated all the authority and power one might expect from a king. And earlier, as I said, Mark used the Son of God to begin his gospel to describe Jesus. And here, Jesus used the Son of Man. There are these two phrases, Son of God and Son of Man. And Jesus uses Son of Man quite often about himself. The Son of Man is also a phrase found in the Old Testament book of Daniel, and it speaks about the coming king, the one in whom would have be given eternal dominion over God's kingdom. A man, a person. And so this first term, 
Son of God speaks to Jesus' divinity, the fact that He is God, and yet the second term, Son of Man, speaks to the fact that He is a king, and yes, He is a man, a human. You have divinity and humanity. Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, two natures, one person, just as Paul writes in Colossians 2.9, the fullness, in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's not the Jesus we often talk about. And you're like, why are we getting so theological? Can't we just get practical? Give me the four ways to live a positive life. Well, here's why this is so important. You notice that Jesus teaches his disciples not what he will do, though he will do it, what he must do. He says he must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must be killed. And he must rise again. And all of that is meaningless unless he is a certain person that he must be. What do I mean by that? You see, the good news of the gospel. All that God had done in Christ to redeem mankind, that is a response, God's response, God's answer to all the bad news that came in the garden. See, when our first parents disobeyed God's word, right, make really simple, they broke the relationship with God. Now, before creation, yes, before anything broke, planned in eternity, God had planned to restore that relationship. And he chose one family, a man named Abraham, from whom would come one nation, through which he would redeem one people, that he would bless the world. And God gave this chosen nation this thing called the law. And what was the law? Well, it was lots of things. It certainly showed people their sin, but what it also provided was a temporary way to have relationship with God. It provided a way to atone for sins because God said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So we need a substitute. So he provided this substitute. And there was nothing special about sheep and goats. What was special about it is God said, I'll accept this. But it was always temporary. Something must still be done to make this permanent. There needed to be a final sacrifice to ultimately fix that relationship that men had broken. God wanted to love people, but sin had to be punished. So he had to find a way Right To punish sin and yet show mercy. How do you punish sin and show mercy at the same time? We know, the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. And yet, you and I, no one can die for their own sins and live on in the forgiveness because you're dead. But hypothetically, even if you could somehow live on, your sacrifice wouldn't be acceptable anyway. Why? Because you're a sinner. And a sinful sacrifice can't be offered for sin. It needs to be perfect. Are we following? So in order to make a covenant, in order to fix what was broken, God needed someone to represent Him, and He needed someone to represent mankind. And that representative was going to have to substitute Himself for other sinful men, or he's going to have to die in their place and pay the penalty of sin. 
But this man couldn't be sinful himself. He had to be sinless. Or it wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice. But he couldn't just be a sinless man. Well, why is that? Well, no one man can fully represent God. And no one human's blood is going to cover the sins of so many. So he also had to be the Son of God with blood that was of eternal weight who perfectly represented God. So God did this for us by sending His Son in the form of human flesh to be rejected, to be killed, and to ultimately rise again to overcome death and offer eternal life to anyone who would believe. Therefore, God could be just and He could be merciful. He could be wrathful and He could show grace all on the cross. So that's why Jesus says, this must happen. But He must be both the Son of God and the Son of Man. Now, Peter's troubled by this, as we should all be if you step back. Why? Because this is radical. It's not just radical in terms of Peter's vision for what the king was supposed to be, the Messiah was supposed to be. It's radical even apart from that. Apart from, it's so different than any other religion or any other cult or anything might offer. Because you have your creator dying for creation. The one who is supposed to conquer being conquered, not accidentally, not unintentionally, but willingly. Out of desire to redeem his people. The prophet Isaiah declared it hundreds of years earlier. We wonder, who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it the Romans? It was God. Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. He must suffer. He must die. That mankind might be redeemed. Hebrews 2 says the same things. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He was already sinless. He became the perfect sacrifice. So Peter rebukes Jesus for his prediction, though it is the perfect plan of God. He's totally blind to it. It doesn't seem like it works with how he understands the Messiah's mission. And even though he's rebuking Peter, he is only saying what all the other disciples are thinking. And so he rebukes them all. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because you're tempting me, like Satan did, to avoid the cross. There was plenty of people that would have made Jesus king. But he didn't come to be an earthly king. He came to die to be the ultimate king of all. I think many of us, like Peter, rightly know who Jesus is. We rightly confess who Jesus is, but we wrongly decide and dictate what Jesus should do next. Oh, I know who you are, Jesus, but that's a bad plan. Who's Jesus? Is He Lord of all or not? 
I think many of us confess Jesus Lord with our mouths, but we sometimes function as if we are Lord of our own lives, deciding what we think is right and wrong and good and bad. And this is next for sure. And we make this mistake that Peter did. If he is who we say he is, and we confess him to be, and that requires a certain response. And Jesus invites us to respond rightly at the end of this passage. And in that he says, faith requires much more than just a confession. It requires much more than just one right answer to the one question. It's an invitation to all who would believe. If you look in verse 34, this is right after he rebukes the disciples. He goes, okay crowds, come in. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So they're there too. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? So Jesus speaks to the crowds and the disciples. This is important for anyone who confesses to be a Christian today. Because he talks to those who are considering and may follow him in the future and those who are following him right now. And he says the same thing. He says, if anyone, he draws some really clear lines in the sand. If anyone is going to follow me, if anyone is going to call themselves a Christian, if anyone is going to claim to be my disciple, if anyone is going to identify themselves as a believer, then you better count the cost of living that label. He says, following me begins with Self-denial. That's costly. Sounds easy, but it's costly. And it can feel that like denying ourselves is denying every desire we have, losing our plans, losing our hopes, not having any goals of our own. And in some sense, that's true. But I would argue just to help you out a little bit, that self-denial is not the same as self-abandonment. Self-denial is a rerouting of your identity. It's taking Jesus away from the center of history and making Him the center of your life and reorienting your priorities around that. Well, how do you do that? Well, I believe the psalmist says it well. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Do you know what happens when you delight yourself in the Lord? When you seek and savor the face of Jesus? Funny, your desires begin to change. And God's desires become your desires. So self-denial isn't the loss of anything you want. It's God changing, ultimately, what you want. And giving you what truly fulfills. But it also requires, Jesus says, you've got to take up your cross, which, no matter what you cut it, doesn't sound good. But I think the focus of it is this. Criminals 
were forced to carry their cross. And those who stand for Christ, who say, I believe, willingly pick up the cross. They pick up what is a tool of shame. And they make the choice to place their faith in Jesus to endure the expected shame that comes from being perhaps misunderstood or marginalized or maligned by strangers or family or friends. That's hard. One commentator put it well, faith is a judgment about Jesus and faith is a willingness to act on that judgment in face of possible judgment from the world. It's a judgment about Jesus. It's a willingness to act on that judgment, knowing that judgment will likely come. And Jesus allows you only two choices. You can follow me, or you can follow the world. A confession of faith is not enough. Anyone can do that. In the last days, I think it is becoming very hard to stand for Jesus. And I don't mean stand for Jesus the good man, or Jesus the good teacher, or Jesus the moral leader. Many people do that, and that's easy. I mean Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords. I mean standing for Jesus as the resurrected Savior. Jesus as the man who is God. Jesus who is the living Word. To stand for Jesus is to stand for the Word of God when the rest of the world goes the other way. The Word of God declares very plainly, without asking your opinion or how you feel about it, what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what is true, and what is false. And many will refuse to stand for the Word of God that teaches us everything we need to know and should know about Jesus and is the very thing that Jesus Himself taught because they don't want to lose their life or reputation in this world. It's too costly, but Jesus warns us in the plainest of terms, whoever loves your life in this world more than you love Jesus, you're going to lose it in the next. He says something quite interesting as a warning. He says, look, if you go after the world's riches and the world's approval, the world's pleasures, if you make that your supreme pursuit, you may actually gain it all. You may succeed in winning the world, but you'll lose your soul. The only thing that actually lasts. You lose your soul. We don't talk a lot about soul anymore. And I'll give you one more caution. Not because I'm mean, but because I think it's the loving, truthful thing to do, and that's this. There are no second chances in the next life. There are no retests. To give a different answer to the question of who is Jesus. Nothing you can give in the afterlife to ransom your soul back from God. The only ha hope we have 
now and in eternity comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior as the only way, the only truth, and the only path to eternal life. What we believe, what you believe, not what they believe, what you believe about Jesus right now matters in eternity. So brothers and sisters, I plead with you, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed to stand for the truth of God's word out of fear of losing when it doesn't really matter. You can lose everything in this world. It doesn't matter. Because if you do, if you shrink in shame, you know what Jesus says? He'll refuse to stand for you when it does matter. But there's hope for us all. How do I know there's hope? Peter! The guy for whom the Gospel of Mark is the memoir. What about Peter? He denied Jesus. I mean, boldly. You're going to deny me, Peter. No way, Jesus. Never. It's like you can do it three times before the end of the night. No way. Boom, boom, boom. And yet he's forgiven and became a leader of the church. It's never too late to stand for Jesus, no matter what you've done. No matter how much you've denied the Lord, He embraces you, He forgives you, and He empowers you to proclaim it boldly. I encourage you to receive His grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace to us. We know, Lord, with our words and with our actions, we have probably often denied You. We may have even confessed the truth of who You are, but how we live, Lord, looks very different. Forgive us, Lord, and embolden us. Help us to stand for the truth of who you are, Jesus, not just a good man, not just a good teacher, a moral leader, but the Son of God, resurrected, reigning, and returning for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I invite you this morning to the table for communion. If you're a believer, if you're not, this really isn't for you. You still need to submit your life to Jesus. So get off the throne, let him get on there, repent and confess, and then join us. would love to pray with you. But if you are a believer, be careful you're not one of the disciples who got the words right, but the life wrong. Maybe you've followed Jesus for a long time. Perhaps today is the day where you come to the table and you decide, today's the day I'm no longer ashamed, or whatever that means for you. Because actually, walking up publicly, it's pretty safe in this building. But it may not be someday. This is a tangible way for us to confess we actually believe who Jesus is, and we know what He has done. He has taken away my shame and my guilt, and I no longer have to live in that life of what I was, but I live in the identity that Jesus has given me, and He's returning for me, so I can lose everything in this life. I have eternity to be with Him. That's what you declare when you come up. Do that with boldness and with joy, knowing that He is coming. Let's stand and sing to our King.